we got Mike Leonard joining us from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Mike, how are you doing, my friend? John, I am doing fantastic today. Happy Sunday. Yeah, it's kind of weird being on on Sunday, isn't yeah, it? It is, it is. We're normally on on Saturdays, so if you're just joining us, this is Let's Get Legal, like just joining our program for the first time. It's a uh, legal show. I'm not a lawyer, but Mike is. <laughs> he's, one of, <laughs> he's one of our frequent guests, and he can answer you, any thought, question. John, I thought you were a lawyer, based upon your, your questioning. Oh, me. that's very kind of you. No, I am not. <laughs> I thought about going to law school, so let's call that the qualification. Why don't you pick up the degree now? Why is it too late? Tell me. I'm very busy, Mike. I, I host know. two shows here on this radio station. As they say, there's always time for law school, John. Is there? That's I what don't they know. always say. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it. What do you think about people going late to law school? We've had some texters and callers say, is it too late for me, my kids? They're in their 30s. I don't think oh, so, right? no, not at all. I mean, I think these days, so many people don't go directly from undergrad. Like when I was in law school, I started in 1990. No, sorry, 1988 at Loyola, the fall. That was my first year. And right would, out of college, right? Right out of college. I would say at that time, 75, 80% were straight from undergrad to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's dramatically changed. I'd say a lot more people go work for a few years, do this or that, do that. And then come to law school, could be late 20s, could be early to mid 30s. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that if you go a little later to law school, a lot of times there's there's grants, there's things they can give you because you're an attractive candidate at that point if you've gotten some body of work in, even if it's not in law. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I think in terms of getting into, you know, higher and higher level law schools, I think it's probably good that you have some experience. I think they like that. So the fact you've been out in the work world, you got some perspective on life. It helps you too. You right. know, going directly from undergrad to law school, you know, John, some people might still be in that party mode, you know, <laughs> not me, of course. No. But, um, but yeah, I think it gives you a good perspective on things. And I think you're attractive to the law firms and people go back at age 40, age 50. I mean, people just something they've always wanted to do and they, and they do it. I think it's great. Yeah. I, um, I stayed at the university of Illinois. I stayed in Urbana-Champaign for four years after school. Wow. But I didn't end up with a law degree. <laughs> Is that because it took you eight years to get your undergraduate no, no, degree? No, 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 no. Just check. Took me the standard four and a half. I went. I studied abroad one semester, and then I worked down at Urbana Champaign. What was your What was your job post? Like after the first four years, I what? ran a radio station. Actually, awesome, yeah, awesome. It was a great experience. Got to do everything, and then I swore off radio. Moved out to Washington D.C. Worked in the Senate. Said I'd never work in radio TV again, and then we lost our election, and I came home and worked in radio TV instead. Didn't you so. always have the itch? So, because you loved it, so didn't you have the itch always to kind of get back into it? Radio and TV? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah. Right, exactly. But this show's not about me. Although you it have seems, something, John, John. It seems to be. I, I mean, <laughs> right. Uh, let's get back to. Uh, but I got what I'm going to hand you. Okay, I'm going to hand you uh, since I'm a defense attorney. I'm going to hand you what we marked as defense exhibit one for identification. Okay, handing it over. So I need to the l- listeners can hear that. Yeah, this is a plastic right. bag. It's a plastic bag containing something wrapped inside the plastic oh, bag. Oh, boy. I hope it's food because I didn't eat lunch It's not evidence. This. It's not evidence. Okay. okay. So I'm opening this up. So first, the first question. Oh, I can smell it. Because I'd always have to, if I wanted to get something to evidence, I have to lay a foundation. Can First of all, can you identify that for me, sir? It looks like a sandwich of some kind. Yes. You're, you're correct. It's so $9.75. Think, yes. Sandwiches are expensive these days. I did give half to Ooh, the booth, though. It's so, like an Italian sandwich here? I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I want to set this up right. So first of all. The sandwich has been admitted into evidence. Okay. You haven't, you, of course, you can't identify the vendor. We know that. No, I cannot. But what we'd like you to do, and the listeners would love for you to do, they take that first bite, do it close to the mic so they can hear the bread No, crack. no one likes to hear that. They so. don't want to hear that? I don't know. But go, but go ahead. Okay. Well, no one likes to hear chewing on air. No, I think they do. They want to hear, they want to hear the sound of the bread. You're a law expert. I'm a radio expert. I don't think people want to hear All right. Chewing. Then whatever you want to do, you're the guy. Mm. 
Well, that's very good, Mike. Okay. So now we're going to have some follow-up questions for you, John. Okay. Um, I, first of all, this before, is a whole bit. I'm glad you yeah, were prepared, be, Mike. Yeah, before we identify the sandwich, because um, it does kind of go to your street credibility, John, mm-hmm. as, a, as a guy about town, mm-hmm. um, can you just describe for the viewers what you just experienced? Well, it was a it was a hard on the outside bread, but it had soft inside, so it was very well made. A baguette. Took a bite into it. Some crispy lettuce. Looks like some salami. Something spicy in there, too, and maybe a mozzarella cheese. I think it's just a provolone. I think, provolone, I think, you're I think right. some of the meat has a little spice to it. Okay, the meat has some spice to it. I, the tomato fell off the back of it, which, which is okay. Um, tastes great, though. Was there mustard? Was there mayo? What, what did you go with? That? I didn't get deep enough into the sandwich. Do you need? I mean, do you need a second bite? This is so, let's get legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Well, as we've discussed, I'll do another. I'll do another yeah, bite. Another bite. As we've discussed, it's important as a trial lawyer when you go to other cities, you have to know their local cuisine. You can't be going to Olive Garden. You know, you got to know their subs. You got to know their pizza slices, right, John? Doesn't look like any mayo. More so oil. Yeah, oil. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't request the um, the mayo or mustard. Okay. okay. Yeah, that's fine. So, where would you put that in the pantheon of your experiences with Chicago subs? It's great. I love the. I don't often get an Italian like this. Yeah. With the spicy meat, I usually am a roast beef guy, but I loved it. I think it's a nine and a half after two bites and out of ten. I, and I think the key is the bread is it's not the spongy <laughs> soft bread that you often get, right? Mm-hmm. Right. No, it, it has that crispy exterior. Yeah. So, right. can you can you now identify it for the listeners? What where it's from? Yeah. Mm, no, I cannot. Uh, okay. Is it Graziano's? No. Okay, it's not J.P. Graziano on the west side. Mm, I don't know. The listeners are on the edge of their chair right now, I, John. I don't know if they all, are. All four of them. All four of them <laughs> want to know where that sandwich is from. Uh, we have a caller. I don't oh, know good. if they're going to take a guess. Let's, let's have the caller. The, let's, the caller may be saying, please move on to something else. So let's wait <laughs> he could for be. Iridium should to I, screen Should it. I identify before we talk to the caller? No, we'll find out in a second. So you brought me this sandwich, just to recap, You're, yeah. because you go across the area you go across the country and, and find these little great places. Um, I think Rob's got... You got headphones over there, I Mike? do, yeah. Let's, hear, put those let's hear what Rob has to say. All right, let's get Rob on the line. Rob, are you enticed by this sandwich conversation Mike and I are having? It's one of my favorite topics. I love sam- good sandwich stories and good sandwich shops in Chicago. All right, so We love listeners like this, John. Hard exterior bread, salami. What are the meats here? Salami, it's provolone. Like ca- salami, capicola. Yeah. You get provolone as your cheese. I think there's like two or three meats as the base. Any guesses, Rob, about where it's from? Um, I, I'm thinking that if it's, if it's as fresh as Mike says, I think it's got to be somewhere from close to the loop or yeah. just outside the loop. This yeah. could be our listener Maybe, question for the um, day. We could just spend the whole day fielding listener from, questions. I don't know. That might be our last show. Uh, <laughs> from the near west. Is it your spot on the near west side? Yeah, that that's you love? true. Rob's right. Near west side. All right. Any guesses, Rob? Well, you know, the, I, I think the two best sub shops on the near west side are D'Amato's Bakery and Bari's. Um, I don't know if it's a bakery. Did you get it? Like again? a Bari grocery store. He got store. it right on Bari. Oh. On, Bari Little Grocery Store. Grand Avenue. Yeah. Right like next to each other. 1100-ish West Grand in Chicago. It's a little grocery store, but the key, John, is not the grocery store. It's the back. Mm-hmm. Where everyone lines up to get the freshly made sandwiches. So Bari. Right? Yeah. All right. We'll tell you what, Rob. Uh, we don't have a prize for you. Mike's going to treat you to lunch one day. We'll connect you guys, okay? Fantastic. <laughs> I don't know, but Thank does he have so to much. eat with me? Does, the, he's wondering, does now. he have to eat with me? Right. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Well, he's, it depends on if he's committed a crime or, is a, excuse me, accused, accused, of, of, a accused of a crime. Allegedly. Rob, then he'll do your defense and he'll get your sandwich too, Rob, okay? 
That's great. I'm, I'm all, all in. <laughs> Thanks for calling, buddy. All right. Well, that was 10 minutes of, uh, of our sandwich time. What else you got for me, Mike? You're a busy man, aren't you? Yeah, well, I think you wanted to do a little deeper dive into a trial since we just finished one. Yes. Just... How'd that go? Because you were telling... Which, remind the listeners what trial you've been working on. Sure. Recently. We had a two-week Medicare fraud case in federal court in Chicago. We started... Uh, it seems like ages ago. We started Monday, January 9th, I guess it was. Okay. It feels like months. Yeah, and then we just, we just finished on uh, Thursday, 4 or 5 o'clock this past week. So With uh, a verdict and everything? Got the verdict and everything. So luckily, and fortunately for my client, we got a not guilty on all counts, which was super exciting. From a jury? Yes. In federal court? In federal court. That's another one for you, Mike. It is, John. It that is. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> it doesn't. So when you when it happens, you really want to take the time and relish it because that's you hear... why you're in such a good mood today, yeah, exactly. Mike. That's when you why, walk in you just I, want a big case i would never spring for a sandwich for you john unless <laughs> i had one you I know was gonna say 975 at that you know wow I, but before we set it up I, I, I know you don't like to talk about your achievements on air too much and you're you're you really are a down-to-earth guy i talked about it earlier in the show how rare it is to go to a jury in a federal court case because the feds have so many resources they put towards cases which is fine i'm glad they do have resources to do these things um but it's rare to go all the way to a jury and get a not guilty vote it is yeah i mean i think statistically in chicago the u.s attorney's office wins i think they say 90 percent of the time i think it's more like 80 and i think it's i think it's going down in our favor a little bit over the years mm-hmm. over the last five years but yeah i mean statistically they're going to win a lot of the time uh it's it's difficult to overcome a lot of things i mean you you first of all if you're a juror you're walking into kind of the majesty of this giant courtroom yeah you see two or three prosecutors with two or three agents sitting at the table and then they have you know five behind them in the hallway who are working every angle they can and have done that uh, and then they have these, you know, sort of shopping carts full full of what looks like evidence. So I think, you know, just from the get-go, there's this notion that, oh, gee, you know, if they're here, they must have done something wrong. That mm-hmm. sort of mentality, even though, of course, the standard is is the opposite. So you're you're dealing with that from the outset. So I think that's always something and something you worry about that's in people's minds. But you know, you're going to get certain number of people on your jury panel who've had experience with law enforcement or maybe anti-federal government, whatever. And so you're hoping to find in that jury pool, you know, a balance that of, of people who can be open-minded and fair-minded. And we, we clearly got the group in this case to, to do that. All right. So can you give us a few of the details of the case? Anything? Oh, that, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, a little bit of nothing, the setup. Nothing is secret anymore. So it's kind of weird. I, I want to lay these facts out for you and see, because I thought it was it was as presented a kind of a complex case that in a way almost fools people. So it's Medicare fraud. So, you know, the, the foundation for any Medicare fraud case is that someone's billing Medicare okay. for something that they shouldn't be doing is, is kind of the Genesis, right? Which is no good. You shouldn't cheat the government. Correct. Out of that. Okay. But, but the theory here was a little bit different in that you had a, a Chicago based durable medical equipment company. Okay. Okay. So they don't manufacture the stuff, but they distribute it, work for other manufacturers, things like that. Right. And what we're really talking about are braces, you know, things like for shoulders, for knees, ankles, all those kind of things. And so the government's theory was this, um, our company, um, they weren't manufacturing the braces, as we said. But what happened is they contracted with uh, another company down south. And that company said, hey, look, we will run the ads on TV, right? Okay, the, the, which, the other company. Yeah, which will generate, you know, leads for people who want these braces. Right. Um, but the interesting thing was, you know, so people are seeing the commercials on TV, kind of like you see late night commercials, mm-hmm. right? Or they might see it on the Internet. 
Uh, but then these people are agreeing, yes, we want to be called. We want to be contacted, right? right. So there's no fishy business about you know, the, the customer, the consumer who's a Medicare they beneficiary. They see the ads, they say, yeah. oh, I want a brace. I, I need want one. to do it. They consent. They, they fill in a form with some information. They even say who their doctor is. They say, I, I re- agreed to be called, right? Right. So then this other company, uh, that other company down south, they would contract with a call center. And so they would take those, what the government called leads, and they'd call those people back and say, hey, we see that you said you wanted to be called about this product. You know, do you want it? And they'd talk to them about it. And they'd give them more information, right? Mm-hmm. Including information about their doctor that authorizes them to call the doctor's office directly, send a doctor's office a fax, right? And then, so the final piece would be, as part of what the guy down south is doing, he'd then send, he'd get the doctor to approve, you know, through um, these, you know, different companies, right? This is as complicated as Medicare itself, by yeah, the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so then you'd have a prescription written by a doctor who, who got the prescription from this company and said, okay, yes, I agree to have patient X get this brace from the company in Chicago. Okay. Right? Finally and, connecting the dots. Yeah. And so all our company in Chicago is doing is then, since they're licensed and allowed to bill Medicare, then they would get those prescriptions from the company down south, since we don't manufacture them, right? And then we'd submit them to Medicare. Okay. Sounds... Okay, right? What sounds bad about that so far? Nothing really. Okay. It doesn't seem like so, you did anything wrong so, yet. So the government's theory was that because we received a percentage of the money that Medicare paid out, like so the company down south got like 79% for doing all those activities mm-hmm. we just talked about, and we and our billing company got 21%. They said getting a percentage was illegal because- Getting a cut. Getting cut because it, it somehow induces a referral- of the patient to us, okay? And we were saying, no, the doctor is the one who's making the referral. It's not the company down south. They're, they're, so the government characterized it as the company down south was selling prescriptions to us, right? Okay. And we were just doing the billing function. So that's the factual background. And to me, you know, an average jury coming into any court whether it's Chicago federal court or state court, that to me, isn't that sort of complex right off the bat? I was just going to say, if you're a juror, I've never been on jury duty. You know, I want to be on one. Yeah. Never let me be on this case. Yeah. Yeah. This well, is, I'm, we not, got the right results. So I'm, I'm glad I'm good for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But so boy, that's a boring. Case. Yeah. And then, and then what made, what made it more complex is you had, you had two defendants going to trial at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so each of those two defendants have completely different knowledge bases uh, of what should be allowable in the industry or not, what's illegal, what's not. You know, so that's why, you know, we got a benefit because our client was lesser in the hierarchy, right? And so therefore have less knowledge of what's legal, what's illegal, right? Is your was your argument to the case that they didn't know it was illegal or that no one would know that as illegal. Like that's that's a complex law, and it isn't clearly defined. Why is it? Why are we even here today, John? I wish you would have given my closing argument. You know, I, I would have even maybe they would have paid me money on top of the not guilty. But <laughs> that's a great question. No, so yeah, my argument was along those lines that hey, my client was not in a position within a company to ever know that this process was illegal, right? Because you have to show that they willfully and knowingly violated the law, right? That's the standard, right? So my pitch was, no, she didn't know, and certainly no one ever told her. The result, we'll talk about the witnesses that testified for the government, but no one got up there on the stand and said, yeah, we ever told this woman that, hey, what you're doing is illegal here, right? She was just doing accounting functions and administrative functions. She was making sure that this company down south was paid as part of her job, you know, pushing the button for a wire transfer. But not knowing that something isn't legal or not legal isn't always a defense, is it? Correct. But in this case, for, for Medicare fraud, they had to prove that, 
the person acted willfully, meaning that they knew they were violating some law. Okay. Not necessarily the anti-kickback statute, which was the law we're talking about, that they were violating some law, which is weird because the government's whole case is they're violating the anti-kickback statute, right? Mm-hmm. And so obviously the jury knows that's what, what law that everyone's talking about that they're allegedly violating. So, but no, you made a great point because secondarily we were saying, hey, look, you know, not only was my client not in a position to know this was illegal and was not intending to violate any law, but if if anyone went and looked at the millions of regs and policies and laws any average person yeah, that make no... up Medicare, you would not find a piece of paper that said getting a percentage is illegal. It's right. like an interpretation of the statute, right? right? So set it out clear, government, if that's yeah. what you want, and, clean and that up. Where, and that's where we're arguing because, you know, and again, I know you wanted to talk today about some of the different witnesses they put on. I don't, right. I don't know if they need to go to a break. Or... I do in a moment, okay. but yeah. But yeah, so... But the whole thing was sort of complex to begin with yeah, and, and, and based a legal theory rather than just kind of a everyday, hey, someone got shot and who did right, it? Right, right, exactly. All right. Like, interesting stuff. And I'm going to eat the sandwich during this news break. Uh, where is it from again one more time? Bari. I think That's it's right. a, about 1,100-ish West Grand in Chicago. Great. All right. I'll have to check that out after I eat this sandwich. LeonardTrialLawyers.com is where you can chat with Mike and his fine work and team and everything. And it's time for the news on WGN. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, with host John Hansen. Today's show is sponsored by attorney Patrick Dolan at Siegel and Dolan and Leonard Trial Lawyers. Now, here's John Hansen and Let's Get Legal. 720 WGN, Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike, I was just telling you about last week's show, and we had so many great discussions about the uh, idea of the sheriffs, whether they should be able to enforce or not enforce the law. And uh, we were just talking about how much we love our listeners here on WGN. Yeah, that, that's a, it's such a great subject because, you, as we were, we're talking about during the break, it's like we sort of pick and choose in our own minds what's appropriate. Like you said, well, what if the mayor says to have a sanctuary city? What right. If, what if a prosecutor decides not to you know, charge this type of case. And charge we're doctors kind of, we're, who yeah, are we're, we're really kind and, yeah. of making our own value judgments about what people should do or do not, but it happens all the time across the spectrum of cases that involve, you know, any enforcement of the law. Right, and even people are saying, well, and some of the sheriffs were saying, not to rehash this whole thing, because we talked about it on WG, and not only this last week, but this week, the idea of like, well, not all... You know, police officers enforce speed limit laws like one mile an hour over. There is discretion in law. Correct. There's discretion in who prosecutors decide to prosecute. Yeah, right. I mean, obviously, you know, we, you think if someone violates the law, they will be prosecuted. Not true. Obviously, prosecutorial discretion applies, mm-hmm. right? To charge a case, not at all. Okay, right. So someone could have violated that law, and the prosecutor could make the decision they're not going to charge the case at all. Right. Right. Which would be good to get some call-ins on that. Yeah, I'd be curious. But uh, but we all believe that that's an important discretionary function. Yeah, it was just I came into the show with my opinion pretty rooted in. And I think I ended up there, but I, I got tugged along the way by some of the listeners, and I would I just love it. So yeah, yeah, three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. That this is just a long way of saying this is your show, two listeners. And Mike, you're so good at taking questions and thoughts on that. That if you have any legal thoughts or questions, and you want to chime in, I know you don't normally hear us on a Sunday, but the, the lines are open for you, people. And so. it's, plus, it's more interesting to hear their views than ours, John. Right? One hundred percent. Especially <laughs> if we're talking about sandwiches. No. So I got a question for you. I've got three text messages in a row saying what movie got them into law. 
Can you guess what the three in a row were? Wow. Is it, is it uh, My Cousin Vinny? It is. <laughs> <laughs> my Cousin Vinny, it's funny because universally, if you ask lawyers, judges, like, what's their favorite legal movie, that comes up all the time. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Three, it, three different listeners said that? Yes, wow. right in a row. That's my Cousin cool. Vinny, My Cousin Vinny, My Cousin Vinny, including Ken from Berwyn and uh, Fred chimed in as well. And, and I think why lawyers like it, because it is very practical, like commonsensical. I mean, yes. it's, first of all, it's absolutely hilarious. Right. But, you know, you know, I don't want to go too far because then I'll get in trouble with the judges. But, you know, that whole dynamic between a judge and a lawyer. Right. It's very true. I mean, it's not like that always. But, I mean, there's a certain dynamic in every courtroom, depending upon the judge, between the lawyer and the judge and how he or she runs their courtroom and how they react to you reacting to them. Right. So it's it's an important part. But also, I think the great thing about that movie was the cross-examination scenes are, you know, there's a legitimacy to them. They're like common sense. You're trying to make a common sense point to people. And, you know, the grits, you know, is a good example. <laughs> but, I mean, that's that's how it goes. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to tell a story through cross-examination, not just, you know, spank somebody. Right. You know, so that that's why I think lawyers enjoy it so much. Yeah, and you're looking for those kind of gotcha moments that are probably over-dramatized sometimes in movies. But... You've had those gotcha moments, too, and they can be that dramatic, right? right? And Look, I think because jurors watch so much TV and movies that involve law, there's an expectation of how a trial is going to be. So they do have an expectation, in my view, that there's going to be some drama on cross-examination in particular, right? And that they, they like to see a government witness dismantled, discredited. I think they enjoy it. Do you and ever... Just like any other witness, they, of course, there's a they're sitting there. They hear, you know, this side of the story sometimes is not super exciting. Um, and sometimes they have a perception of a witness. Oh, that person seems credible, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. They're, I'm, I'm totally convinced that, you know, the defendant's guilty based upon what this person just said. And then all of a sudden they love to hear that, oh, well, that's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Or the witness's background is a lot different than we thought. Mm-hmm. Or there's a reason why they have a motive to testify the way they did. They enjoy that, right? And so this idea that it's not a drama, in my view, is false. They they want to see people dismantled. It depends about how you do it right? and to whom, right? Do you ever have uh, maybe a second counsel or someone on your team that sits at the bench uh, where you guys sit and is ready with maybe a soundtrack music to play underneath it when a dramatic <laughs> when a dramatic yeah, mu- yeah, mu- moments that, coming wouldn't up. That, wouldn't that be great if you could do that? Like, like I was thinking, dum dum yeah. dum dum yes, dum dum. Exactly. Yeah, I, w- I wish you could do that. Yeah, <laughs> but no. I think there's an expectation in a juror's mind about how a cross examination is going to go. Certainly, you can't treat every witness the same. If you go up there and you know get boisterous or loud or confrontational with every single person regardless of the role in the case it's not going to be exactly. persuasive gotta, and it doesn't and it doesn't make sense right you gotta pick and choose yeah because every witness you know your your theory of the case and your theme is one thing and so certain facts you're not contesting at all right so you're not getting up there and saying everybody's lying you don't want you're do trying that. to make your points about you know well what did they not tell you or how can we put that in context right because it might, you know the case we just tried was a perfect example they had like this government cooperator to come in and testify. And he was the guy, you know, we don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but he was the guy that uh, the the company that we were representing contracted with, right? Okay. And he'd been defrauding. If, if, if you believe that this was wrong, he'd been doing it for years and making tens of millions of dollars, but yet he was only given a light sanction and was going to pay back almost nothing, right? And he's here to say, you know, how bad our defendants are, right? Um, so we obviously had to point out what this amazing benefit he's getting and how 
you know, influence he is because all he has to say is I had this conversation, an oral conversation, which is really not provable or disproven. I was going to say, right? he said, she said. Yeah, yeah, but in terms of my client, again, it points out the difference between the two defense. In terms of my client, I wasn't contending he was really lying really about anything as to my client. He wasn't saying that he really knew much about my client. He had interacted with her, but he wasn't there to tell the jury, hey, I called her up and told her this. It was the opposite. I was able to establish that he didn't do that, right? Right. So for me Let to me get up there this. and attack him wouldn't make any sense. Let me just set up that again. So the person that was uh, testifying for the government yeah. was someone who had actually admitted to committing fraud. Yeah. And he, was trying to help convince the jury that your client was really at guilt. Yes. And you are allowed to, as a defense attorney, let the jury know the benefit that a government witness is getting. Yeah. And what the government tries to do is preempt you. So they put the witness on. But they go out of their way to say, oh, sir, you know, is it true you've pled guilty already? Yes, I have. And, you know, um, what's your obligation? Oh, my obligation is just to tell the truth here, you know. And what do you, you know, what do you hope to get? Well, I hope to get a lighter sentence. You know, they try to set it up so to take some sting out of your cross, right? Right, that they're not, that you don't have some big dramatic moment where it's like, it's a government witness. Exactly. They let let them know ahead of time. They spend a lot of time going through that. Of course, they don't cover it all. No. Um, So then our job is to, you know provide some more context about really not only the benefits to you there was a benefit to your father you know which was true in this case right oh, interesting his father wasn't being charged with that crime and some other crimes that he had made known to the government so you know that provides context but in my circumstance other than providing the context as to why he'd be motivated to assist the government and say what he was doing was wrong um i my really goal was to show that look you had these interactions with my client you never let her in on your little scheme, right? And so to me, it was more effective not to show that he's just this big liar, but to show, no, you had all these interactions with my client and never made known to her there was anything wrong with this whole scheme you say you had cooked up. And for those just joining us, it was a not guilty verdict you got for your client, which congratulations. But then my question is, is did the government go, man, I wish we wouldn't have given that witness a freebie on this one because they ended up not getting the verdict they wanted. Yeah, so the, they... um you know, it's it's always a mixed bag. From the government, always feels they need, especially in federal court, they always rely upon, rely upon cooperating witnesses. It's it's rare that they don't have them. So, which makes to, sense, yeah, to them, that's their their bread and butter. You know, and so, but the problem is, some of these people are so motivated by what they're getting out of it, they really aren't credible. And what what really is hard to take is the fact that they can make representations about, hey, I had this conversation, right, or I did these transactions. And, you know, if we're talking about a non-white collar case, like a, like a bread and butter, you know, violence case or whatever, there's no way to disprove that. You know, I mean, sometimes you can uh, through other forensic evidence, but sometimes it's hard to disprove what was said during a conversation or that ever occurred. Right. And so the government's saying, hey, you know, this person, of course, is a bad guy. We admit that, but you, you should believe everything he has to say or she says, but you know, some of the stuff they say, it's self-serving to the government's position. And, you know, they don't have a lot of incentive to, you know, to uh, discredit that themselves. Right. right. And there's no way to really prove some of the stuff the person's saying. So as a defense attorney, is your job often when a witness comes forward, you're not necessarily going to dispute what they're saying, but you're disputing either their motivation if they're a government uh, witness or even 
do you ever go after someone's qualifications or maybe their pri- previous biases that they might have in this case? And not to be hostile, not to treat this person disrespectfully, but just to at least get in jurors' minds that, hey, whatever they're saying, at least understand this information about what they're saying in the context of what we have here. Oh, yeah. And that, that comes up, John, a lot. In, in most federal cases, there's usually the government has one or more ex- what are called expert witnesses, right? So they're qualified by their experience, education, et cetera, to be an expert on a subject. So the case we just tried, they brought in you know what I call a so-called expert, and he was there really to essentially lecture on the Medicare program, like what it is, how a claim is submitted. Which what, is good to know because it's sure, confusing. Cor- correct. But he was trying to say, okay, these are the types of claims Medicare wouldn't accept, right? Kind of pointing to the claims that we did. But the problem was the person didn't work for Medicare. He was a government witness who had testified 150 times, right? So they have him go around the country, get on a stand, and talk about what Medicare does and thinks, even though... He's just a private he, citizen. Yeah, he doesn't work for Medicare. So I, I found that highly offensive. So, of course, in our cross-examinations, we want to show, look, you actually work for a company that isn't Medicare that get pay, gets paid millions of dollars by the government, and you testify all the time. You roll into court, and the funny thing was, what I was able to do with him, he had no idea what the facts of our case were. He's just like a lecturer, so he comes in there, and I go, "Hey, do you know such and such?" It was my client. He's like, "No, I've never heard of that person." I'm like, "Do you know if she's even here today?" He's like, "No." And then I'm like, "What about the other person or the other defendant? You ever heard of him?" No, is he here today? I don't know. You know, it was just, just showing that he's not an expert on this particular yeah, just case. Just how absurd it is. He knows absolutely nothing about the facts ah. of our case. Yeah. Well, you're good at this, Mike. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you got any questions for Mike, or if you want to let us know what your favorite movie or TV or book moment was, what got you interested into law? I'll share mine. Mike will share his too. Leonard Lawyers dot com is where people can go for more information. Mike, what number do they want you to call if they need you, John? Three one two three eight zero six five five nine. One more time. Three one two three eight zero six five five nine. More with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers after this on Let's Get Legal. It's John Hanson here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. You've got about four minutes until the news, Mike. Uh, I wanted to ask, and we've been asking people what got them into law, and I ask new lawyers this all the time. For you, what was what? Is there a moment that you know you were like, "This is what I want to do"? Yeah, I think it was partly failure and partly aspiration you know like i I started college and my dad was like you gotta have a business degree you gotta you know go into econ and so i was like okay and i was taking all those econ classes and like after the first two years i'm like oh my god i really hate this stuff and so i knew i couldn't do that and then i was like okay what 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 do i want to do you know and then i don't know why it's just like a light bulb like i'm gonna go to law school right that was like after sophomore year of college so there wasn't some grand no, I mean, I, the... I, I always thought it was really cool. Like, okay. I, I mean, to me, it was a perfect fit because, I mean, first of all, I only wanted to try cases. I didn't have any interest like, okay, I want to go be a business lawyer, do transactions or, or real estate or whatever. I was like, I just want to try cases, right? Even then I knew that, right? Because just from the excitement of TV, movies, whatever. This to doesn't me, surprise me to knowing me, that you just, now at that all. That just like fueled me. I thought You that, wanted wow. to be in there in, in front of the jury. Oh, yeah. It just seems so cool. It seems so exciting. So, of course, when I like, why, why can't I do that? You know, I never had really thought about that. And that was like, okay, I got to go to another school first. I got to go to law school first. But like, I never really had cemented in my head that that's something that was possible. Oh, I, had, yeah. I had a grandfather who was a lawyer. Um, wasn't like a trial lawyer guy, just was a really sweet guy in Wisconsin, practiced in Milwaukee. 
and I just wish he could have, you know, oh, been around to, to see you to do see, it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he was a sweet guy, but he he didn't do the trial work stuff, so I didn't have all those family role models role models who I'd say, okay, I want to be like that guy who's a lawyer or this guy. And right? it's achievable, right, in your head. Yeah, you almost had imposter syndrome, which so many people have. All over the place. I have it. All, I have it before every trial. You still do? Of course. Yeah. I have. I have it before every radio shift. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Because I grew up listening to WGN radio. I never yeah. thought, oh, I'll get to be. You. You picture as like you want to do that, but yeah, you don't yeah. ever think you can. That's what. That's. And the then fun. to get to do it, it's like whoa. Yeah. yeah that's to me like yeah. It, going into a trial, you always feel like, gee, am, am I worthy? Can I do this? Can I win? I mean, especially if you lose a case or a couple in a row, you're like. Am I ever going to win again? Yes. Right? Am I? Am I? Can I do this I've right? Been, I've been found out. I'm yeah, a bad and, lawyer. And, and you put so much into it. It takes so much to put into each trial. Interesting. That you're, you know, you're even when you get done with the closing argument and you're waiting for the jury to come back, which could be a couple hours or a couple days, you're already kicking yourself in the head, saying, "I'm going to lose because I just did this wrong in the closing argument." Right? Interesting. And then you know, a couple hours later, you find out you win. Oh, I must have done that wrong. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I just I to anyone listening out there, I think we can all relate to the idea of we're doing any job that we because we all live by the adage "fake it till you make it." At least that's what I always tell people. Yeah, and then at some point you go, "Wait, am I am I faking it too much?" Yeah, yeah. Like, well, especially um, you know, getting into the federal criminal stuff. You know, when I was a young lawyer, I'd be over at federal court on civil cases, and I'd be walking past these courtrooms and I'd look in there and see, you know. 20 lawyers and piles, tables full of evidence. I'm like, that, I want in on that, right? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing it at the time. So to try to make that that curve to get there was exciting. Worked hard. Uh, 708 said, uh, the book is Mockingbird. Don't remember the full title. Well, To Kill kill a Mockingbird. Mockingbird. That was mine. Required reading right in my freshman year of high school at Downers Grove South. A lot of people love that one. That's for sure. And Atticus Finch just standing up for what is right over in front of a town that hated him for it. It just did. It's moving in the in the movie, of course, but in the yeah. book, it is something. And else. I wish it was always that simple. Like, hey, I got this case. I'm so I know. right. You know, I know. But it, it is. It was great to see. Okay, we're gonna take a break here. We got the news. After the news, eight four seven wants to know what's it like to beat the government in a federal case. Ooh, we'll get that answer for Mike and get your answers to what got you into law. You're obviously listening here today. Some some interest in it. Let us know if it was a movie, a TV show, what it was. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. More with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. It is just about two thirty seven here on WGN. John Hansen in until three o'clock, and um, we got Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers joining us. And uh, keep on thinking, salivating about what it's like to beat the government in a federal case, because that's from the 847. But first, a couple more answers to what got you into law. And we'll go to the phone lines. And Keith, Keith, are you calling from a helicopter? Where are you calling from, bud? Oh, he just hung up. (laughs) He was going to say Perry Mason, which is great. Oh, that's great. I think, don't you think it's a classic? It is. Like the courtroom scenes, you know, just the drama and the the black and whiteness of the filming and like it's always it's always getting someone who actually cracks the only disservice to the law is like you know you rarely get someone to just like crack and go yes. away it's just like oh i, I did it you know like <laughs> it, that that rarely happens but the, but the drama i think is what is ingrained in us as viewers and then you know kind of uh has something to do with our expectation of what a trial is going to be like interesting right? that, that confrontation I'm more concerned about Keith. Was he just kidnapped by someone with a helicopter? Keith, call back. Let Iridian know you're okay. That would make me feel better. Three one two nine. I'm sorry. And I think what's what's analogous to the uh, Perry Mason is the Fugitive. Oh yeah. Well, so I don't know if any of your so listeners good. saw the original Fugitive Black and White Television. Oh, I'm series, sure they did. But that is fantastic. And yeah. like each week, you know, he's in a different location, 
trying to make his life, you know, and then, you know, the, the law is always nipping at his heels and he's the guy who's wrongly accused of the murder of his wife. Yeah. You know, you know, Oh, I love the fugitive. The movie, never seen the show. 708 says the Nuremberg Nazi trials. Interesting. Wow, interesting. Must have been extremely publicized and yeah. talked about in the late 40s when they took place. And yeah, and I, I I have a little bit of knowledge about those, but I think I think weren't they televised at the time? I would I would imagine. Yeah, that so. would have been so. That'd be so interesting because also from an American standpoint, like as a viewer, a listener, you know, you would I would think you would think it's so black and white. Yeah, right? that that that's so wrong. Everyone who's who's on on trial, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Hey, Keith, you alive, bud? What are you doing? Hey, how are you doing, folks? Uh, um, you're talking about lawyers. Uh-huh. First one, first one comes to mind is Perry Mason. Oh, that's yeah. Way back there. Oh, that's yeah. A, Keith, that's and, a great one. Yeah. Matlock. Yes, Matlock. Matlock is good, too. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. would you say, Keith, that Matlock's kind of like, a, he was sort of a kinder, gentler version of the Perry Mason? <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, do you think any of these shows really line up? Like you're saying, do they line up to what uh, what it's really like? That's a great look? question. That's a great um, question. Or, Keith. You know, generally no, because you know when you're when you're watching one on TV, especially on TV, like they have to, they got to get the trial in, and the, and the key moments of the trial in like you know, ten to fifteen minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to kind of cut to the chase. And only show you, you know, the most dramatic cross-examination you can possibly imagine. And I think what is surprising to people, especially in federal criminal trials, is, you know, oftentimes the length of them. And, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that is not exciting, right? It's admitting documents into evidence. It's calling witnesses to talk about financial records. All all the kind of stuff that, you know, it doesn't have the sex appeal that a TV show would and doesn't have the instant gratification of, of the cross-examination. Right. And I think a lot of times the jurors are kind of waiting for direction to the closing arguments to sort of put it all together. Right. Mm-hmm. Because not, not to say it's over their head, but it's just a lot of pieces to a puzzle. That's not just readily apparent. Yeah. Know? I'd be worried about falling asleep. And, Keith, and... have you been on a jury before? Um, no, but I was close and then they can't cancel the, a couple times. They, this was in Iowa where I live. They uh, they solved it before it got on there, I guess. Whatever or they settled was. it, probably, yeah, or determined not to go to trial, ultimately. Okay. Hey, Keith, we... that, are, are you related to Roy Leonard? No, no, Did but I, when I was a kid, I remember driving in the car with my dad, and, of course, that would be mm-hmm. on, you know? Yeah, for w. sure. Jen would be on, and also Milt Rosenberg, remember him, too? Oh, for sure, like My please. dad would be listening to these oh, shows. Yeah. I'm like, come on, Dad, extension some seven. rock and roll. You know? <laughs> nope, you get <laughs> extension Orion 7. Oh, yeah, Big O still Oh, Orion yeah, with the farm report, yeah. For sure. All right, Keith, i got to let you go. Um, Thanks, Keith. Yeah, that's a great call. All right, so in a couple minutes or less, what is it like to beat the government in a federal case? It's a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> you only needed a few seconds well, for that great answer. Because it really, it really is a huge challenge. You know, first of all, as we said, you know, kind of statistically how often they win and all the resources they have. Right. And, um, and then and we've talked about this briefly. There, there are some prosecutors who kind of haven't, you know, uh, one could argue, not me, of course, that, that there's a little arrogance there, um, and in terms of their approach. So it, it's it's just very gratifying, yeah. and and particularly like in a case where we just had, where I was just from day one, a hundred percent convinced that my client, this woman, was innocent, not guilty, right? Not just not guilty, not not a case where oh you just can't prove it, but I was really all in in her innocence, right? That she 
didn't know that she was violating any laws, right? So She's facing years in prison. Yeah, exactly. So it's also pressure, too, because, you know, you feel like, oh, this person really is innocent. I can't believe that, you know, I have to sort of prove the not guilty, right, over a course of a couple of weeks. And it's a tall order because, like we say, you know, people go in there with an expectation that, oh, well, maybe they did something wrong. Right. Maybe they're not saying what all that's there. You know, why aren't they testifying? Even they don't have to testify. So you're dealing with all those issues. And, you know, it's funny because I even, one of my recent trials um, a year or two ago was with a good friend who was a former federal prosecutor. And one of his first cases after leaving the federal prosecutor's office was, was, was with me. And we won that case, and he w- he thought it was so fun and exciting to beat them, too. <laughs> I'm not going to name him. Yeah, know, there you but, go. But he thought it was exciting as well. Let's go to the phone lines. Tim is on. Tim, you got a question for Mike? Yeah, I was uh, just wondering when he's going into a case and he's got to pick a jury, what are some of the qualities that he wants to have and what does he want to avoid that's a really good question hey can we ask you first you know we're putting all the listeners on the spot have you been on a jury yourself before i have never been chosen no okay but have you gone through the whole process where the attorneys and the judge are asking you questions okay okay did they ever disqualify you or did they they just did the case didn't go forward uh i think i think i was disqualified because I'm a teacher. So ah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's funny because you just asked, like, what are we not looking for? What are we looking for? So in every criminal case, I mean, first of all, you have some Nobody sort of, wants Tim is the first thing. Well, we if your do. name is Tim, we, you're we do. out. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. We we would view generally, if you ask most defense lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, they say teachers. We'd say absolutely. As a category, that's, a, that's the kind of person we want. Because what you're looking for on the defense side is, you know, people who you think can be open-minded, yeah. right? Who deal with a lot of people, who maybe have an ability to give someone a second chance. So to me, the category teachers always, if I'm looking at, you know, because you get a list, Tim, at the beginning of, of your 40 people that are coming in that day. And they've answered, as you know, you probably did yourself, Tim, you're, they've answered a number of questions about themselves. And one of them is mm-hmm. their occupation. So immediately I'm circling that like, oh. Potentially someone Can you who's, Google the names of people? That's a great point. So what happened in this trial this week is the judge had entered an order forbidding us from Googling them during jury selection. We actually filed a motion to point out why it's so important because, you know, everybody, their whole life is out there, right? And there were some really good cases from other jurisdictions where they allowed it. And there was also some great information online about how people who are jurors actually don't mind being Google and actually have an expectation that they will be right. So the judge actually reversed himself, which I thought was really cool. And he entered an order saying, yeah, during selection, you can Google people. Whoa. Yeah. Which, but the weird thing about it was I thought it would be super revealing and insightful. I didn't, I didn't have Facebook access, but I had Google access. Right. Uh-huh. And so maybe if I had Facebook access it would be better. But uh, interestingly enough, I didn't think it was crazily insightful. But but I think if I would have dug a little deeper, you still don't have that much time, right? right. Oh, so it's in the trial. You're allowed yeah, to Google them so, from, your, from the bench. Yeah, because the people come in, the 40 people, you're handed this document that has their juror questionnaire responses, right? So we know stuff like, you know, Tim said we knew his occupation and things of that nature. We knew uh, what town he's from. He had answered a number of questions about whether he'd been on a jury before, whether he had new law enforcement people. 
but because of my, if I had, if I had maybe more bodies with me, and we could have gone deeper into Facebook and stuff like that. Interesting. But we're picking and talking to these people while we're doing while that. we're doing it. Yeah. Wow. So I, and I don't even know if they knew we were doing that. So you fought to get Google, and it didn't really help you all that much. Well, it didn't in this case, but I think it's really important because it is interesting. Everyone's life is out there, but Tim, we're looking for, uh, you know, over as a general category, people who can be independent, who can be open minded. You know, kind of this weird thing of, you know, can they, can they be fair, which is a hard nebulous category. Things we're not looking for or things that are red flags or disqualifiers. You know, people who have a lot of law enforcement personnel in their family. You know, hey, my brother's a cop. My sister's a cop. My dad's a cop. My, you know, my cousin's a federal agent. You know, obviously that piques our interest and makes the hair go up on our neck when we hear that they have lots of law enforcement in their family or all their friends are in law enforcement. Why? That's something... Because, let's face it, we think that they're going to give more credibility to law enforcement and and to the government's case. And, you know, one of the things that's... Well, maybe they have a lot of people they knew and trust and thought did great jobs, which they might. Correct. But that doesn't... I mean, and there's the battle. The government can try to keep them. We can try to get rid of them. doesn't mean that someone who, who has a lot of law enforcement connections can't be fair. But we... Our fear is that when those witnesses hit the stand, you know, the 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 jurors are told by the judge, hey, look, you got to start with ground zero on the credibility of every witness right but it's hard to do that yeah you know, it's not really you know most people aren't capable of that and especially if they have all sorts of positive experience with law enforcement they're bound to sometimes accept the idea that they're more credible when they hit the stand versus neutral okay interesting yeah uh tim thanks for the phone call okay all right tim just was sitting there patiently listening we yeah, appreciate yeah. that uh that's interesting to me i mean i i get it but i want to defend Police officers and their families. No, who we're, not, are, we're not saying they're bad people, but look, if you're if you're in a case where the two sides, one side is law enforcement, the U.S. government prosecuting your client, right, and the witnesses are going to be all members of law enforcement, you're going to have you're as a defense lawyer, you're going to have a worry that they're not going to view each witness uh, on an even footing in terms of credibility. If they have all these great experience with law enforcement, which is nothing wrong with that, they might be prone to say, well, we think they're more credible, right? right. And you have to overcome something to prove us to prove to us that they're not, right? Plus, you're just, at that point, you're operating in generalities, right? Yeah, and we're not striking, and nor do we have the ability to strike every person who knows someone right. who's a cop. And <laughs> we're, not, we're not trying to do that, because obviously on every juror pool, there's lots of people with a lot of depth to their experiences in life. It's not just a disqualify. Oh, they know some law enforcement. Let's get rid of them. Of right. Course, you don't see their come from not. Mount Greenwood and you say, well, they're, they're no, out. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, oftentimes I'd say so many times you look at the juror questionnaire and you're making notes to yourself, like just to paste them on their initial answers, like, oh, this person's going to be a problem for us. And then you hear them. You get to hear them answer questions from the judge and from you. And you think, and you're like, oh no, this person seems great. You know, this someone we All want right. on our side, right? Interesting. Yeah. All right, uh, let's take a break. More with Mike Leonard coming up here on WGN. Mike Leonard uh, from Leonard Trial Lawyers. We've been talking about what got us into law, and the 708 said. The O.J. Simpson trial. Oh, yeah. That was riveting. I mean, that was amazing because remember just the sheer length of that? That was months on TV Well, I was a day. child, so, but uh, I do remember oh, seeing yeah. the highlights for how, sure. How old were you during that trial, John? It was, what, 94 or 94? It was 1994. 10. Wow. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah. I do remember. And it would be on the my favorite show growing up. This is 
a little window into my world was late uh, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Wow, you were, never you were, miss it. John, you were quite an intellectual <laughs> growing up, right? <laughs> did you ever eat pizza slices back then? No, or, or I'm sure I did. Yeah. Uh, but that was uh, the world in which I grew up. Um, but no, uh, I would watch it obsessively, and so I'd get caught up on all that stuff. L- let me ask you a question about that trial. First of all, I thought the OJ trial was riveting. I think mm-hmm. it was actually uh, interesting to society. I mean, people tuned in that was mm-hmm. that was huge but um interesting do you remember where oh you're probably too young do you remember where you were when in the, the verdict, chase when the verdict came down? yes no we, when the verdict yes came down. Yeah. we were i was at hillcrest elementary school in downers grove and we, the teachers were all in the lounge gathered wow and we were all kind of like poking our heads out the hallway like the whole school stopped man and we waited and a teacher came running down and said it was uh, not guilty wow that's crazy yeah i remember i was in um i was in like a bar restaurant lunch i think it was i think it was bonnie vino restaurant in the in the south, it was the middle of the day, right? Mike? Yeah, it was, no, it was like it was like twelve thirty one yeah, or something because everyone knew the verdict was coming out. Yeah, and I just remember like you had half the crowd stunned in silence yeah. and half the crowd cheering. It was like a, a totally divided America. Well, you know? and as a kid, I didn't get that, but then watching the documentaries that they've done afterwards or the docudramas they've done afterwards yeah. about it. And and setting up the context of the L.A. police and the Rodney King and all that sort of stuff, yeah, it yeah. opened my eyes a lot to what was going on in yeah, the country it was, at the time. For, yeah. for the defense, it was kind of a perfect storm of just years of yeah. of bad treatment and all that. So, I mean, you know, knowing the jury pool and knowing what was going on in L.A., it's probably, you know, in retrospect, it's not that surprising. Right. You know? No, 100%. Um, I on Travel, by the way, with Peter Greenberg's coming up next. Got about a minute and a half left. Alec Baldwin charged. Wow. Surprised? I was surprised. I mean, I think that, I think one thing he did really poorly is I think he mishandled the sort of publicness of that leading up to the charge. I know at one point he went on and claimed in a very public interview that he hadn't even pulled the trigger, which I think was just an absurd position to take. Obviously, he knew he'd pulled the trigger. And I think that, I think maybe if he would have presented himself differently, maybe there wouldn't be the need to kind of publicly go after him, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's going to be a tough case to prove. I mean, you're almost like putting on the production of a movie on trial, right? Well, and let's also note that it seems to be that they're charging him more as his role of, as a producer than as an actor pulling the gun. That as a producer, he's responsible for a culture that would not allow this to happen. Am yeah, I reading that right? Exactly. Remember, keep in mind to, to us and to our listeners that it's the standard is not intent. So they don't have to prove, and they're not claiming he intended to shoot and kill this person. It's just reckless conduct, just kind of like that highland park case with the father recklessness right right that you you know about something and you're not taking the proper steps yeah he's basically being charged not just because he's the actor because he's the producer and responsible for the overall sort of design of using the guns the armorer i love that term armor it's a a hard one to say i want to be an armorer when i retire (laughs) okay but um, yeah i'm surprised i think i think they'll have some difficulty improving the case but again i think a lot's going to come down to that county where it's charged, I'm not sure which county it's charged, but that could be a very rural yeah, you New Mexico know. county who could be very anti-California, anti-Star. Oh. You know, oh, so you I think the jury pool is going to have a huge effect on that case. Interesting. All right, Mike Leonard, who should be calling you? John, people who are accused or worried about being accused of a crime or being investigated. Um, we regularly try to verdict federal court cases and also state criminal cases. And then sometimes on the civil side, we try to jury, you know, whistleblower type cases. And the number is? 312-380-6559. 
We'll do it again soon. Say Thanks, it one more John. time. Actually, say it one more time. 312-380-6559. Do I have to do like a radio voice for no, that? You, no, we don't. Hey, have. John, call a 312. <laughs> Where's his off button on his mic? There it is. That's Mike <laughs> Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. That'll do it for us this week. We're on next Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Pencils and scorecards ready. There you go. Time for a break. Then news coming up from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom on WGN.